Broadcasting from the 10 Hudson Square building, home of WNYC Radio in Soho, New York, welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies. My guest today is Josh Gollum, CEO of Hazel Health, a Silicon Valley-born telehealth company that brings free healthcare, you heard me right, free healthcare to students through partnerships with school nurses and health services. Knowing that access to healthcare isn't easy, but a proper education at a young age is crucial, Hazel requires no appointments, insurance, or immigration checks to provide necessary care to students. With a team of licensed doctors, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners, Hazel is closing the access gap when it comes to quality student health care. Under Josh's leadership, Hazel currently serves 15,000 students, which has led to 85% of students returning to class the same day as their Hazel visit and a 40% reduction in health-related absences at partner schools. By broadening access to free, same-day health care for students, Josh is literally transforming how schools, especially in poorly funded areas, can keep students in class. Josh Gollum, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you, Aaron. Great to be here. I didn't mess up that introduction, right? You did a fantastic job. I, I'm going to use that if I could just copy that and say that every time I go to speak, I would do that. That was perfect. Well, you made it easy because this is all your work that I was repeating. So Hazel wasn't the first healthcare-related company you founded. What drew you to building Hazel? Yeah, well, thanks, Aaron. So, and I actually might go back to some of my, I think the, the kind of the seeds of Hazel for me was probably actually 20 years ago. So right, right out of college, my very first job was I joined what's called AmeriCorps. It was the Urban Peace Corps, one of the very first classes of the AmeriCorps that came out during the Clinton administration. And it was all about trying to get people from colleges to do two years of service. And, and when I did that, I spent two years actually working in schools in inner cities. And particularly, there's one school that I spent most of my time right here in California that was this bilingual immersion school where they were most of the students were second language learners, they're primarily Spanish speakers. And this school district had tried to create kind of the special magnet school to see if they could show, demonstrate the same outcomes, academic outcomes for kids from lower income backgrounds as some of the surrounding communities that were much more affluent. And it was, it was such a phenomenal experience because most of my days were spent at the school working with the teachers, working with the parents in this kind of very ground level service role. And it was interesting because I got to spend a lot of time looking at my looking at how teachers thought about academic instruction. And and a fun fact, I actually where I met my wife. She was one of the teachers at that school. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about education outcomes. But I also spent a lot of time on the community engagement piece and working with families. And the thing that always struck me is that while as a school we were spending all this time thinking about academic instruction, there were so many things going on in these families' lives outside of the classroom. They're impacting how the kids are doing. And so, you know, we get to know families where there's single parent family households, where there might be a parent in prison, where families dealing with food insecurities or homelessness. And I remember even back then thinking that, gosh, there's so many other things beyond way before this. There's a term now that is very in vogue called social determinants of health that talk about those things. But even back then, it was yeah, I think folks in schools have always known gosh, there's so many other things going on. And, and particularly for me, one thing that struck with me was just this idea of health and that like, if these kids don't feel good, whether it's physically or, or mentally, they're not able to perform. And so I, I ended up spending about 15 years in the healthcare world, 
and had the, the great fortune of working with great teams to two, build two different healthcare companies. And that I'd say that like the genesis of both of those companies was this idea of where is it hard to get access to healthcare in the United States? Like where do you find populations that really struggle with just getting basic access? And as a result, they end up having far worse outcomes and actually end up costing the healthcare system a lot more money because they use the hospital system. The one I'll talk to just maybe for a minute is that the last company I worked with was called Paladina Health. And in Paladina, we were building what are called doing direct primary care. So we're building primary care clinics across the country. And so the idea would be is we'd find a part of the country where we typically would work with employers. We'd find a company, say, like a meatpacking plant in the Midwest where you could look at their data and you'd see they had really high rates of chronic disease, things like diabetes, chronic heart failure. And when you also looked at their data, you'd see that there is really low use of primary care, that people either weren't going to the doctor or using the hospital as their place, which is, is, you'd probably know, far more expensive. And definitely not preventative care, right? There's no interventional or preventative, like that's nowhere in the the script. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because it'd be a place where you, like we'd have this very common experience when we would interview folks who worked at these places as we were getting started, what their experience was with healthcare. And it was generally terrible. And it wasn't that they had bad doctors. Like it wasn't that they like had a doctor that they disagreed with. It was just the process of getting access to the doctor. You know, wait times on average in the country, about 30 days to get a doctor's appointment for primary care. You know, I think we all know how unpleasant it is. It's hard to take time off work. And so people just avoided it. And so our our idea there was for mainly for adult populations, well, gosh, why not create this really amazing service experience could we build a place to get preventative care, like you said, right there at the work site so that they could get access to a doctor? We could get them same day, next day appointments and just phenomenal service. They'd have access to doctor cell phone numbers, whatever they needed to make sure that they could get the care they need. And like the big punchline that we found in that business is it works, that like people do want to engage, people do want to be healthier, they do want to use the healthcare system and get preventative care. It just, the way that it's been designed has not been in the interest of patients or really doctors for that matter. When you joined AmeriCorps, my guess is that a lot of the folks you graduated college with were going off to other kind of, you know, for-profit high-paying jobs, right? (laughs) That would be true, yes. Why didn't you pursue that path? I feel very lucky that I've had been instilled for me from, I've had just phenomenal role models in my life. And I I think one that I always look up to is my grandmother who unfortunately passed away last year. But she, I have an interesting background. My, my mom's family all immigrated here from Mexico. And my grandmother, she was actually pregnant with my mom when she crossed the border. She, so she and my grandfather had, well, they had 12 kids, nine survived. And my grandfather passed away, I think when he was at 42. So all of a sudden, my grandmother was here in Southern California, nine kids, all of them under the age of 18, no husband, did not speak the language and was working multiple jobs my mom was actually the second in line. So my mom and, and her older sister and the next one in line actually had to trade off taking days off of school to take care of the other kids just because my grandmother had to work switch. They grew up very quickly, right? They almost got totally. robbed of their childhood. Yeah. yeah. And then here am I, I did really well at school. I had this benefit of having the ability to go to college and to get access to all these things that so many people in my family didn't. And you know, for me, it always felt like my, I had a responsibility to find a way to give back you know, to my community specifically, but also to the community at large. 
so then you, you had a bunch of jobs, you founded a bunch of companies, and it feels like you're coming full circle now, especially as it relates to the point about not having to check someone's immigration status, right? That should never be a barrier or some sort of gating factor to access to healthcare. Absolutely. And so here's a fun fact that hopefully my mom won't get too mad. So we, one of the things that we discovered when my grandmother passed away is we found my, my mom's birth certificate and actually learned that however many years ago, I won't, don't date my mom, but actually on her birth certificate, there's actually a different woman named as her mother because my grandmother was illegal. And so she went under a different name just so she could have my mom. And without getting too political, you know, I think there's so many people that I know that come from, and this is not just true of folks who come from Mexico, there's so many children and grandchildren of immigrants that because we know how lucky we were to get this opportunity, we want to give back. We want to show and be part of the system and, and really add a huge amount of value to this country. When did you start Hazel Health? So we started Hazel Health a little over three years ago. And so yeah, and I'll give so the backstory on Hazel, my experience of it, because there's a bunch of us that came together around Hazel. So what's interesting is while the very first healthcare company we built, we actually started, we launched the business the day that my first son, my oldest son, Gabriel, was born. So, you know, and that's, I always use that as a bit of a metaphor for first company we're building is, gosh, it's like having a child and raising it. And so Gabe, yeah, this is, this is a little bit for 14 years ago, Gabe's born and then around when he's 18 months, we discussed, we found out that Gabe was actually deaf. He had been struggling with language. We thought it was because we were trying to raise him to be bilingual, but it actually turned out that he, my wife and I both had this recessive gene for deafness. And so it turns out that Gabe, and deafness is a spectrum. He's at the very extreme end, so would never be able to hear anything other than really jet engines. And so my wife and I started this whole process and journey with Gabe to figure out, well, how do we get him the services that you need. And one of the things that you discover is that the first things that you do when you, you find out your child has disabilities, you go into county services and get access. And every doctor that we met along the way was phenomenal, or most doctors were phenomenal. But the process for my wife and I going through first county services and then all the programs was terrible. I mean, it was, it was really complex to figure out how do we navigate where we have to go to get resources. And, you know, I, I, speak the language. I have a Stanford education and MBA. We had great insurance and it was incredibly complicated for us to go through. And what was interesting is when you go to these county services, a lot of the folks who are there with you are, I mean, there's folks from all parts of the county, including a lot of folks who are immigrants who don't speak the language. And my wife, who's completely fluent in Spanish, did, did a lot of great work with families we met to help them. But I just remember thinking, my God, if this is so hard for us, I, I can't even imagine how much harder it is for all these other families. And so, you know, fast forward, Gabe is doing phenomenal. So my, he, he got, we got what are called cochlear implants and he's doing amazingly well. I could not be prouder of him. He's in freshman year of high school and actually just his report card literally just came out yesterday and he had all A's and one B plus in like hard courses. Yes. Yeah. Good that's, job. That's not surprising. Good job, Gabe, if you listen. Yeah. He's, he's doing awesome. But I think for me, it's, I think as I was doing all this work on access for adults, I think I always had this calling to say, but number one, like, how do we get back to, can I do something for pediatrics, both because I love kids, but for other parents who don't have the same resources that my wife and I do, but then also always wanted to get back into education in some way. And so when, when I, we thought about the analog, when I thought the analog to what I was doing at Paladina, which is, gosh, if you want to make a great service experience for adults, go to where they work. Well, then, you know, the, the analog for kids is they're at school 180 days a year, 30 plus hours a week. And even family, all family, you know, I think we think about all families, but particularly families in need, 
they typically are finding a way to get transportation there. They trust the schools. It's just such a perfect place to think about delivering care. And was it difficult to convince the schools? In theory, it shouldn't be. But we all know that, you know, schools have rules, there's bureaucracies, there's boards. How hard was it to convince the school board and superintendents and the entire kind of infrastructure to let you in to try this, to trial it at first, then to actually establish this the service for these kids? I'd say actually at the superintendent board level, it was actually probably not as hard at that level because I think there's a lot of research that's come out in the last few years that's shown the importance of health on student outcomes and a ton of research around absenteeism in particular, that that's that if you look at almost any metric you care about for kids, whether it's academic performance, graduation rates, incarceration rates, there's all these metrics tied to absenteeism. So like from a vision perspective, there was a lot of excitement. I think the thing that we had to really invest a lot of time in was really understanding how schools work, learning how to integrate with school staffs, really learning how to partner with school nurses who do phenomenal work. And yeah, I think you're living in the Silicon Valley, there's always this desire to disrupt and we have all the answers. And you know, for folks who work in schools, they're working there in the trenches every day trying to make take care of their kids and doing the best they can with limited resources and if you know if you show up as the you know the knight on the white horse to kind of save everyone with your new intervention without a lot of humility it's just not going to work and so more of the work for us was really in the trenches at schools figuring out how do we make this as easy for them as possible fit into their workflow and also just earn their trust that we care as much about their kids that, and their families that, that they do, that we're not just here as a, you know, some fancy service, but as something that really wants to do good. I was just going to ask that because I figure that earning their trust and allowing you into their world and vice versa is a great leap of faith, especially because it's, it's an app, even though there's another healthcare practitioner on the other side of that technology trust is everything. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so, and it's interesting because, you know, in in the beginning, our focus around finding doctors and providers to serve the kids was, you know, we had our, you know, we had a a robust interview process, but it was all clinical in nature. And what we really learned really quickly was that that matters. I mean, that's absolutely a price of admission, but there was far more focus for us on people that could really connect with the kids really culturally thoughtful and sensitive and could also connect with the adults. Because what's what's different about this experience is you have, from a visit perspective, that when that child is, is sick at school and they come in, so if, let me just back up a second. So a child doesn't feel well typically in class, they come into the office and now the school staff have an option. Instead of sending the child home, they could actually start a visit with one of our doctors. But there's typically a school staff there. And a perfect usually it's hopefully a school nurse. Not all schools have nurses, so sometimes it's an administrative staff. But they're watching the visit and engaging with it. And they are very much evaluating whether or not our our doctors can connect well with those kids. And one of the things that we learned, doctors hated this, but we actually put a little, you know, one to five you know, sort of lift Uber rating at the end of the visit to help get really quick real-time feedback from the school staff. And and it feels a little weird because you, you've, I think for doctors, they're not used to being evaluated that quickly, and especially if it ends up being a non-clinician. But it was a great way for us to get feedback really quickly from school folks on who they loved working with. And you know, I'm proud to say, I think the last 5,000 visits we've had, literally, it, it sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not. We've had like 50 scores lower than a five over the last 5,000 or so visits, just because we've done such a great job of finding the right kind of providers for this environment. And in terms of kind of 
key performance indicators. Can you talk a little bit about that? So you've been in business. I say business with air quotes that you, no one can see for three years. <laughs> are you actually, before we get to KPIs, are you, how are you funded? I, I imagine these physicians, are they donating their time? Are you, are they compensated? Is it through the healthcare system? How does that work? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So we are actually, so we we have venture funding for Azel, and what's interesting about our model, so we and we we basically fund this through a combination of a few different models of how we get funding, whether from school, from payers, from foundations. One of the things that I I didn't know before we started Hazel is that for many states, school funding is tied to attendance, and so I'll use California as an example where we started. So here in California, every day that a child misses of school costs the schools somewhere between fifty to seventy dollars, and that's it. Actually, like directly goes the bottom line, and it's super interesting because if you think if you're the school superintendent or school CFO that, that you you have all your costs that are fixed, and if if some reason you have a flu bug that takes out a bunch of your kids or things like lice infestations, which is real world like yeah. challenges that schools deal with, like all of a sudden they lose all these dollars, but their cost structure is the same, and so. A lot of you know what we've been proud to see in the last few studies we've done on our districts is we're saving about two days per kid per year on average. It varies a bit across districts, but that's what we're honing in on. And if that data holds, that means that the schools we're working with are saving about you know, somewhere between 100 to $140 per year of increased revenue because of our ability to increase attendance. And so, which is great. If, if we can continue to prove those numbers, it helps make this, this program very self-sustaining. What states are you in right now? So we are today in California, Arizona, Nevada, and we just started in Colorado. It's amazing. And in addition to improving attendance and obviously overall healthcare outcomes, some of these kids and some of the, I guess, the underserved neighborhoods, they also rely on that school to feed them, right? So literally, if they don't go to school, they also go without food in certain instances. Is that right? Or is that just, am I thinking more of the New York City model? Because that, that's what happens in Manhattan. No, 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 absolutely. That that's, like ends up, I mean, a lot. I'd say the majority of schools we work with right now, not all of them, but the majority are probably at least 80, 80% free and reduced lunch. And so a lot of the schools, kids can get free breakfast, free lunch. And so it ends up mattering for the kids a lot. And then I, but I think we've been spending a lot more time thinking about the impact on families and parents. And so I, I, you know, I don't remember the New York school ratio, but so, so let me give you some stats. So it, the, in the country, the average ratio of school nurses to students is it's about 1100 to one, but it varies a ton. So like 1100 kids per, per nurse. And so in a state like Massachusetts, it's, it's roughly about one nurse to every 420 kids, which is great. It means that yeah. most schools have a school nurse who's there. Where I live in California, it's about one to every 2,200. So every four schools typically share a nurse. And that's like true where my kids go to school, there's four schools in the district, and they, they basically, it's one day a week, you get a nurse. And so what happens for you, for us as parents, is when our child doesn't feel well and they show up in the office, that there's the vast majority of time, there is no school nurse today for us, unfortunately. And so what it means is the first thing they do is typically call the parent to come pick up their child. And so and the parents at work has to leave work, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. And so yeah, and so what it means, you know, if you imagine, you know, especially in a low income area, you're a parent who's paid hourly, you're now getting a phone call to come pick up your child, who may not actually clinically, well, actually, our data shows that only about 10% of the time does that child actually need to go home. And so now, but if I'm that parent in that moment, I have to leave work, I go pick up my child, I have to hopefully get a doctor's appointment, which the odds that I can get 
into a doctor's appointment the day are really slim. So I'm either not going or using the emergency room or an urgent care after hours, which is a lot more expensive for expensive. me into the health system. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And so so our what we realize is that so when a child comes in, I I gave the punchline a little bit, but what we find is about 90% of the time when the kids come in, they can safely return back to class. And so sometimes, you know, they needed a break. Sometimes now we're actually able to give them a we can give a one-time over-the-counter medication if that's clinically appropriate. But the goal for us is we want to maximize the instructional time if they're healthy, and if it's in the 10% of time where they need to go home, well, you know, there's times that they do need to see their local doctor, but but the majority of times they don't. And we can have already called in a prescription for the family to the pharmacy that they've needed. They know they've already been seen by a doctor. So now hopefully they'll be out of school less time. And and that's what the parents have been telling us is that it's been a life changer for them because now, you know, number one, the, the most important thing as a parent is you feel like you're that there's someone that's looking out for their child and they're able to get them healthcare in a way that they can't if they're working two jobs and can't get them the doctor. But it's also helping them not get in trouble at work, not lose pay. Because what some of the parents have even told us anecdotally is, gosh, what I do now is, you know, I, as a parent, I know this this world at 7.30 when my kids wakes up and says, gosh, dad, I don't feel well. And you know, I'm, you know, I get to call one of my Hazel doctors to actually because of <laughs> like reality check. But if you're you know, if you're a parent and you know you live in one of these schools, you're the, the vast majority of time you're going to keep your kid home because what you don't want to do is drop them off at eight o'clock and then get called at work at 10. And so even if you think they might be faking. It's better you call in sick or, t- or work from home or take that day off, which is lost wages. Exactly. Right. What percentage, if you know this, are issues that these kids use your services for that are mental health issues versus physical health? And is there a rise in that? Yeah. You know, it's a great question. And I, we've been starting to talk about what we do is more like, well, I'll call it wellness as opposed to sort of physical versus mental health. Because if you, when we, like the number one things that kids come into our clinic for is for GI stomach aches, gastrointestinal issues. And, and sometimes it is a physical GI thing, but we are seeing so many things around stress and anxiety and for a whole host of reasons that present as physical health symptoms. And so we're doing some work with them right now. And I think, you know, number one is finding referrals. And we're trying to think about what's the bigger role that we can play because so many of these kids need access to services. I'll, I'll say transparently, even as a parent, I had wanted to get one of my my own kids a chance to talk to someone. And it was phenomenal to me just how hard of a process that was. I, mean, I, I, I literally went to a website, found six different providers. My role as a parent, not as my role in Hazel. I emailed them. Only two even responded of the six. And the two that responded said that they were full. And so here me as a parent who doesn't see it as a taboo, this is a good thing. I want to help my kids get service. I can pay for it through my insurance and I can't even find anyone to see our kids. And so, and again, you extrapolate that to lower income community where they, it's much, you know, they're on Medicaid. And so part of what we see our role is, is how do we bring in more providers, a bigger network to help these kids get the, the services they need. And it's really symptomatic. You alluded to this earlier of such a larger issue with regards to the healthcare system and how broken it is. I mean, we're about to enter open enrollment for our own company. Every year, the healthcare costs rise five to 6% or, or more. You know, we are fortunate or our employees are fortunate in that we pay a substantial part of their premium. But even I, as a 49 year old, you know, and I love my, my general practitioner, it takes me for me to get in there just for an annual visit. It's like a four month wait. That's insane. It's four months. And I think this is just a microcosm in even you know less affluent areas of what we're facing, I think, nationally, right? 
Oh yeah, and it, and you know what's hard is I spend so much of my time with primary care physicians, my last two companies, and the sad part is, I mean, these are I'm going to generalize, but phenomenal people. I met folks who go into if you think of people in medical school, physicians, you know, they all their colleagues are going to all these subspecialties, which are really important, but they know are going to make a lot more money. And people typically are entering into primary care because they care about, they want to develop relationships with their patients and families, and because the system is so broken, they end up, you know. Having 30 visits a day and really struggling, you know, and having to tell people like you to wait four months, which is not how any doctor would design the system. And that's where I think that, uh, you know, we need new models that help bring that, those great doctors, make it easier for them to connect with the patients. And that's what they, I mean, they, that's a win for them too. They would be ecstatic. The doctors I've worked with are thrilled with, you know, both Hazel and my last company, Paladina, because it allows them to do what they did, which is what they went to medical school to do, which is to treat and care for people. You know, you touched on a little bit earlier in terms of a very common issue is our GI issues, right? As a kid and as an adult too, but as a kid, I was, I had terrible asthma and I missed a lot of school and actually not to get too personal or, you know, shouldn't make this a therapy session, but I was bullied. I was called asthma man and laryngitis and hopefully people in the studio aren't laughing now. It actually made (laughs) me stronger, but there was a stigma with missing so much school and I was almost left back a couple of years and I had to go to summer school to catch up. Is asthma still as prominent, especially in kind of, you know, lower income neighborhoods and, and zip codes and areas as reported by media? Yeah, I, you know, I, we just looked at this internally. And I want to say that our, our rate of asthma in our schools is about 14%, which is incredibly high. That's yeah. like one in every seven kids. And, and, and we skew much more, as I said, towards, you know, more urban areas or more rural areas where air quality is poor. And the sad part about that is also when we, and when families enroll, we ask them who their primary care doctor is. And only about 55% of families tell us they have a primary care doctor. And, or, and which doesn't mean that they weren't assigned one by their health plan and like, you know, that they theoretically don't have some, but does that family actually think they have someone that they can call? And so what we're finding is that there's a lot of kids that like have that asthma, that they are missing a lot of school, just like you did, Aaron. And, and unfortunately not being treated because you know for so for example if you and you probably know this but if you have asthma and you have an inhaler or spacer you can only have that at school if the doctor writes fills out a specific form for you to have that at school otherwise you're not allowed to have any medications so we will sometimes find kids who have an asthma but because they don't have a doctor they're not they don't, their inhaler is not with them or they haven't gotten their inhaler feel filled in a couple of years we had a few months ago a family we found it was actually having their child with asthma was using their younger child had been given the nebulizer because they're having breathing issues. So they're using a nebulizer for their, their, their older child's asthma. And all that needed to happen was you know, when, once we realized that and identified it, we connected back to the primary care doctor. We wrote a prescription. We coordinated with the school to get it there. And like it was within weeks, the student's attendance rate was getting better. I mean, it wasn't like rocket science of what we were doing. It was just trying to make sure that the kids got the stuff that they needed in the right place. Would you consider yourself a social entrepreneur? Wow, that's a good question. I, yeah, I think everything for me, like the I have a phenomenal team at Hazel, and like the blessing of my life is that the things that all the things I've been involved with can only be good businesses if we do good in the world. And so, the core of what we the, the way that Hazel be successful will be if we can prove and keep kids healthier in school, reduce ER reductions. And so there's there's like perfect alignment between what I think is the right thing to do and will make Hazel really successful. And that's just a phenomenal place to be in. So without you, you know, I, I'd like to think that would just be entrepreneurship and everyone would focus on that versus have it be its own category. 
but it's I definitely put it in, at least how we define things today in the category of social entrepreneurship. And why'd you call it Hazel Health? Ah, Hazel is actually the, the name of our CTO and co-founder's daughter. So while we were building Hazel, they were pregnant with little, while we were building Hazel, they were pregnant with Hazel. And so we, we liked the idea as we were testing out different names of it being a person's name and this idea that if a child didn't feel well in class and the teacher said, go you know, use that system, we wanted it to sound warm and like a person as opposed to like a platform. And so that was the that name. And, and, and Nick, our, our co-founder, he actually has two daughters, Hazel and Maple. And so we tease him, he's going to have to start another company in, in Maple's name. But yeah. at least for now, Poor Maple. only Hazel has that. <laughs> yeah, we actually, in all fairness for Maple, if she ever hears this, Maple's his older daughter. We actually started with that as the idea. But there's unfortunately too many trademark Canadian healthcare companies named Maple <laughs> Health in some way. Of course. So, so Hazel, Hazel was second on the list. That's, that's funny. So I use ZocDoc. No, sorry. I use Teladoc. I've used ZocDoc. I'm wondering why they haven't entered into this space. So my observation is like the key part of this for us has been the school partnership and integration that I talked to before. You know, the clinical platform, all those pieces are incredibly important. We have to do that well. We really have a really robust model. But for us, it's all been about how do we make that work in the school. And if you if you actually look at the data, like and you compare it to us, it's working. So when you when you look at a lot of the big telehealth companies, again, they do great work, but when you peel apart the onion, I think typically the engagement rate, the amount of people who actually use it that are eligible is typically in the low single digits, like low to mid single digits. I typically see four to eight percent is is what I've seen. And when we put this available in the schools, we see about sixty percent or so of the kids in the first year alone. And, and so for us, it's been this great way and just shown that if you make something super easy and go to where folks are, that they'll use it. And it's funny because I've, I've never in, in, never used it. I have a telehealth, like separate from Hazel, before Hazel, I had access to telehealth platforms for my kids, but it just never quite trusted it, never quite worked for me to want to use that versus other ways we'd get care for our kids. And then once you know, I joined Hazel and we started to use it, it's like now it's amazing once you try it and you see how helpful it can be for your kids that you want more. And as we, a lot of our parents have been asking us, what would we do non-school age kids? What would we do their older kids? Would we even serve them at home? But for, for now, you know, our hyper focus is how do we do school-based telehealth in the best way possible? And be in all 50 states. Yeah. I, you know, at some point, yes. I think right now it's how do we help as many kids as possible in the states where we can provide the most value. Listen, Josh, it's, been great having you on. What's the best way to follow Hazel Health? Gosh, I would say go to our website, www.hazel.co. And we've also got a Twitter handle and would welcome any inquiries from folks who are excited to learn more about what we do. Thank you for doing what you do. And it's great to have you on Brand on Purpose. Thank you for having me. This has been great, Aaron. I appreciate it. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Yeah.